Do you remember the first time you encountered a gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender person somewhere in popular culture? I've been thinking about this lately, and I finally came up with Mary McCarthy's The Group, a novel about a group of friends who graduated from Vassar in 1933. It made the New York Times bestseller list in 1963 and stayed there for two years. I read it in high school, sometime around 1966. One of the characters, Lakey, is a rich lesbian who returns from Europe on the eve of World War II with the Baroness as her lover. I remember thinking how exotic and exciting she was. She was the first lesbian I had encountered. Why do I bring this up? One of the things that has changed dramatically over the last half century is the representation of queer people in popular culture, especially in television and film. So on the one hand, students today confront images of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and even transgender people in a way that is unprecedented, even if the full range of racial, ethnic, and class diversity is not generally on display. Pose is a pretty amazing recent addition. On the other hand, students still learn little in school about queer history and queer lives. So they don't often have the tools to evaluate the messages that popular culture imparts about people with non-normative sexual and gender identities in the past or in the present. Take, for example, the mainstream film Stonewall, released in 2015 to a chorus of outrage from queer scholars, activists, and participants in the uprising. While calling attention to the significance of the iconic 1969 event that has come to stand for the beginnings of a militant phase of queer activism, the film sought to appeal to a broad, read heterosexual, audience by inventing a central character, Danny. Danny is a white, straight-looking, gay kid from Indiana who runs away from home and ends up throwing the first brick when the police raid the Stonewall Inn. By putting him front and center, the film sidelines the real street kids and trans people of color and lesbians who were in the bar and fought back. And they were among those outraged about the film. We have to think about what audiences take away from a film like this. While it's great that there is more exposure to queer history, it's really important that the portrayals be accurate. Popular culture representations can leave a powerful impression of the past that lingers in people's minds. So think about what it meant that the group was my window into the lesbian world. It looked like a place where rich white women hung out with European aristocrats. Of course, the group is a novel and doesn't pretend to capture a transformative historical event in the way Stonewall does. But you get the point. Which is why it is so important to counteract a film like Stonewall with the available documentaries based on research in oral histories and archival sources. I'm Lila Roop, and this is Queer America, a special series from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. LGBTQ history has been largely neglected in the classroom, but it's necessary to give students a fuller history of the United States and to help them understand how that history shaped the society they live in. This podcast provides a detailed look at how to incorporate important cultural touchstones, notable figures, and political debates into an inclusive U.S. history curriculum. In each episode, we explore a different topic 
walking you through historical concepts, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. Talking with students about sexual and gender identity can be emotional and complex. This podcast is a resource for navigating those challenges so teachers and students can discover the history and comprehend the legacy of queer America. In this episode, historians Sharon Ullman and Nicholas Surrett talk about a wide variety of feature films, television shows, and documentaries that you can use to bring LGBTQ history alive in your classroom. They discuss strategies to help your students critically assess narrative devices and identify problematic inaccuracies. So these resources bring history alive without leaving false but strong impressions of what actually happened. Here are Nicholas Surrett and Sharon Ullman. Hi, my name is Nick Surrett, and I am a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Kansas. Hey, Nick. I'm Sharon Ullman, and I'm a professor of history at Bryn Mawr College. And today we are going to be talking about film, both feature and documentary, and the way that it represents LGBT history in the United States. And we're organizing our conversation into different eras and themes. I'm going to be talking about feature dramatic films and some television, and Nick is going to cover documentaries. And there are so very many movies and television shows from which we could choose. This is particularly so for the last 20 years when filmmakers have produced really a great wealth of explorations of the queer experience in U.S. history. So what we've done is we've each selected one or two films to talk about for each theme, ones that we think are representative of important subjects and that are particularly useful in the classroom. But before we get started, we want to briefly explore a few general overarching themes that we want to think about when it comes to films about queer history and the ways they can be used for teaching. So the first of these is about the differences in genre between documentary films, feature films, and television shows, and then how those differences affect how we would teach them. So any of them, but particularly feature films and TV episodes, can be used as a primary source as a way to demonstrate attitudes toward homosexuality at the time the film or TV episode was itself made. By contrast, a documentary film can be used as a secondary source, just like a book or an article by a historian to show what happened in the past. And like those written sources by historians, documentary films also have a point of view or an argument. But those who make them are trying to educate about some aspect of the past. And then finally, feature films and TV episodes about the past, but shot sometime later, like now or 10 years ago or whenever, they can be used to interrogate how people think about the past and how they have sought to represent it. And that is useful for talking about how contemporary politics and concerns influence our feelings about the past. So the point for us is that all of these lead to different teaching strategies because you're basically asking different kinds of questions of each genre and relying upon the media for different kinds of information. Right. And we're going to do some of that back and forth, particularly I am on the feature films, films made at the time, films made now about the time, in thinking about how to use these movies. 
Another thing to look at and think about is the differences between what kind of material gets covered by each of these mediums. So documentaries, as Nick alluded to, are often particularly interested in political activism, whereas feature films are really more interested in propelling the narrative conventions of cinema, you know, compelling plots, storylines with heroes, usually cis male, you got to have a romance, and there's always an action arc over the course of the film. And also documentaries are in the business of recovering, recovery. So they tend to focus on specific events, particular people or places, whereas feature films are really good at showing everyday life and communities because those backdrops are really central to setting the scene in the movie. But the films also tend to treat the past as basically, you know, a good place to tell a good story rather than address a particular history. Now, they're made with really good intentions, but, you know, they got to make money. So first and foremost, they need to spin a good yarn and grab the audience's attention. Having said that, though, I'm one of the people who believes it would be a really serious mistake to dismiss films about LGBT history as untrue, even if, you know, on some factual level, they kind of often are. Feature films really have a capacity to animate deep emotions. They offer the opportunity to present a different kind of truth one that unfurls from the heart of the audience who watches and responds on a personal level. And this kind of emotional bond created between audience and film has, for movies about queer subjects, the capacity to propel a form of, I don't know, what we might call restorative justice for a lost LGBT history. People watching emotionally rich films about the past, regardless of their own personal position and relationship to it, they feel a sense of connection. Scholar Alison Landsberg coined a term, prosthetic memory, for the ways in which audiences take in these narratives and make them part of their own personal past. And I see this in my classroom enacted in the LGBT context when my students in my basic modern U.S. history classes watch Harvey Milk die at the end of the movie Milk from 2008, and all of them grieve for what they understand now to be a shared national loss. We also want to admit at the outset that there are some limitations to this genre, and by genre, we just mean film more broadly. The films and shows we're going to be talking about tend to feature a lot of white people, and white men especially. They have far less representation of bisexual and trans people, though things are changing in the realm of trans representation on film, especially so in the realm of features and definitely TV as well. The other thing to note here is that many of the documentaries, especially, focus on San Francisco and New York. Great places, to be sure, but focused on way out of proportion to where gay and trans people have lived, which obviously has not just been in those two cities, great though they may be. (laughs) Yes. We should add, and it's necessary to bring this up, that it's also somewhat complicated to use these films in classroom settings. There's resistance at multiple levels to any kind of film content about queer subjects. I mean, this is an identity defined by who you love. Showing sex generally can make some stakeholders in this whole conversation very uncomfortable. But because of the intense history of homophobia, showing same-sex sexual activity, even something as simple as a kiss, often produces significant squeamishness in everyone from the students watching the local school board who may disapprove, and sometimes even the filmmakers himself. I mean, for example, one reason mainstream Hollywood films about LGBT subjects are often very chaste or funny is that the filmmaker is responding to a rating system that views sexual content as inherently a problem. 
just showing two men kissing used to get you an R rating for your film, which limited your audience and your box office. So how does a filmmaker signal queer subjects and leave out sex? Well, they often manage it. But that's one of the things that makes these movies somewhat suspect. Because one way they do manage it is by producing cultural stereotypes about LGBT subjects, you know, revealing a character to be queer by how they walk, talk, dress, interact with others, which uh, can be pretty homophobic, particularly in the earlier periods, although it's still often true today. So while it can be incredibly affirming for students to see queer subjects in feature films, these images can also sometimes reinforce broader cultural constructions that really embed homophobia in everyday life. So in order to give you a demonstration of a variety of these different themes, different ways that characters are portrayed, we're now going to start talking about the films themselves. And we're going to start by talking about the representation of queer history before the mid-20th century, because the vast majority of representation has been after that period. So in the pre-mid-20th century period in the realm of documentaries, there's very, very little. In part, of course, because of how documentary films work. They usually rely on film footage documenting earlier moments in time. And if you don't have that film footage, it's more difficult though certainly not impossible, to make a documentary film. There is one really good example, however, and it's a short film called They Drank, They Swore, They Courted Girls, They Even Chewed Tobacco. And this film is based on what was originally a slideshow put together by the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, and it's about what they call at the time, the time they made the film, Passing Women in the 19th Century United States. Of course, the women who lived as men in this documentary often didn't leave behind letters or diaries explaining why they made the choices they did. So the film is largely based on newspaper coverage of these women living as men, and much of it's from California. And many, many of these stories are published when a man was discovered to have been born female. And sometimes this happened only at death, which also then again limits what we know about these characters from their own perspective. It is, however, a great film, and it's particularly useful for showing when discussing women's history as well, because it does a great job of demonstrating all the good reasons that women might have chosen to live as men. For safety, uh, to travel, for work opportunities and better pay, because they wanted to be with another woman sexually, and this was not possible if they were living openly as women, or because they believed themselves to be men. And the film was made some years before trans politics came into the public view in the way that they have now. But it does very much leave open the possibility that female-bodied people who lived as men may have done so because they identified more as men than as women, a sort of precursor to today's trans identity. She Even Chewed Tobacco, the movie, is distributed by Women Make Movies, and it's available on their website. It's also available, I've found it, at least in many college and university libraries. If you're looking also for histories to teach alongside the film, there are a number of options. Particularly useful would be Claire Sears' book, Arresting Dress, which is about cross-dressing laws in San Francisco, or Emily Skidmore's book, True Sex, which is about trans men at the turn of the 20th century and their representation in the press. It's really funny and fun to hear you talk about uh, the Even Chew Tobacco, because I was a member of the Historical Society in its early years and was one of the people who helped put on that first slideshow at the Women's Building in San Francisco with a packed room of people so excited to see that slideshow. So it's wonderful to look back on my own history in connection to the history we're talking about. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I did not know that. (laughs) Yeah. And that slideshow, She Even Chewed Tobacco, was one of the first presentations we ever made to try to show LGBT history, I think at the time we said lesbian and gay history, to the community. And Estelle Friedman, who had been part of the Gay and Lesbian History Project, from which the LGBT society emerged through Bill Walker, who was also a member of that project, she did this. I mean, I remember this as being Estelle Friedman's project. And the room was in the Women's Building in San Francisco. It was a site for enormous amount of community activism. And there was a big room up on the second floor. It was packed with people. There had to have been 100 people there. And I remember how excited we were to show this because there was so little public discussion of lesbian and gay history. And here we were offering this show. And people came. They came. It was advertised in all the queer papers. It was just a fabulous night, and I remember my excitement, and I remember seeing the room fill and just being so thrilled, because, you know, we didn't know, right? We thought, well, is anyone going to show up? But people did show up. Every time we did one of these events, and we had quite a few, Mm. people were hungry for this knowledge. That's fantastic. I only vaguely knew the history of this, mostly from watching the film, which I've shown in classes and had shown to me in classes as well, and it definitely credits This is sort of emerging out of or in tandem with the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society. And Estelle Friedman is definitely still credited in the film, but I didn't realize that it was she who actually delivered, at least some of the time, the film strip as it was. Yeah, there's a slideshow, right? Actual slides. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a nice memory. I have a very clear picture in my head of that evening. Yeah. From the infancy of narrative film... Through the classical years of Hollywood, as it's called, uh, through the 1930s, actually queer coded characters do appear in films. I think we assume today that people didn't get it, or maybe there's some secret code among those Hollywood types where they're showing that, but no one really knows. But that's not really true. These characters are absolutely understood by the audience to be queer by virtue of how they perform or misperform, to be honest, their gender. And you see this via characters of effeminate men known as a pansy character in the history of film, often an artistic type or a butler. Frankly, even a British accent can sometimes do it for you. Sometimes this is an old bachelor best friend of the lead male character. For women, this shows up, and I know this character will be familiar, in what we might call the masculinized female character, usually presented as an old maid, wisecracking secretary, the personal servant to the central female character. And you'll recognize these from films you've seen from the 20s and 30s. They're usually the object of satire, sometimes a source of pity in the film. Often they carry the comic relief of the film. They're rarely figures of malice or evil. Uh, (laughs) We might note that the maid, Mrs. Danvers, in the 1940 Hitchcock film Rebecca, is the clear exception to this. That character is also coded as lesbian, but with her frightening demeanor and obsessive fixation on the late first Mrs. De Winter, uh, she terrifies everyone in the film and in the audience. One early silent film that I've worked with in classes that precedes these 30s comedies and also reveals how significant gender nonconformity actually really maps well onto queer codings both at the time and, frankly, later, is a 1914 movie silent comedy, The Florida Enchantment. By ingesting magic seeds, a woman turns into a man, and later in the short film, a man becomes female— when he does the same. The jokes are really based on the audience's understanding of what it means to be female or male and what happens to you when you violate these codes. 
The male who becomes female is very much presented as this soon-to-be classic pansy figure, very well known in popular culture in the period as gay. The film is profoundly racist as well. It needs to be said. There's a female black servant character. Now, there are no black actors here. These are all white actors made up in blackface who also becomes masculine, and her masculinity is acted out as she attempts to force herself on women in the film. Anytime you work with early film in the classroom, because of the intense racism of the period, which is so openly and directly expressed in cinema, and expressed in ways that quite properly shock our students when they see it, you need to thoughtfully frame the context. But this film does provide an important window on a couple of significant themes. It reveals early 20th century gender cinematic stereotypes that cued audiences how they should see and understand queer characters, cues that would occur repeatedly from then until now. And it also shows the important linkage between stereotypes of race and gender that are actually being built into the newly emerging national popular culture at the moment, and which many historians have noted were completely intertwined in late 19th century and early 20th century era. And many of the films that Sharon mentioned, and a whole lot more besides that, are actually included in another film called The Celluloid Closet, which is based on the book of the same name by Vito Russo. And so Russo in the book and then the later the filmmakers include clips and analysis of all kinds of early films that depict characters that are clearly meant to be understood as gay or lesbian, even if it's not named explicitly. So it's basically a movie about how queer people are depicted in movies, and it's pretty fantastic. At this point, we have talked a little bit about how LGBT people are represented in film, both documentary and feature, in the years before World War II. There's not a whole lot, at least not in the documentary realm, and in the world of features, much of it, as Sharon explained, is coded. A lot of this changed after World War II, which was a major watershed in the history of queer life in the United States. Millions of Americans served in the war or in its related industries, and this is men as well as women. Some of them, of course, were queer, and they met one another as a result of their service. When the war ended, many of them stayed on the two coasts and in other major cities in between, opting to live among other queer people instead of returning home. And the result of that was the growth both of vibrant queer communities and more visibility. And with that visibility also came backlash. And so we'll see both of those elements, the visibility and the backlash, in the films that document the post-war period. This is Queer America, and I'm your host, Lila Roop. You can learn even more about how to use documentaries and popular media to explore LGBT history in a valuable collection of essays called Understanding and Teaching U.S. Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender History. This podcast is produced in partnership with the University of Wisconsin Press, publishers of this anthology, which I edited with Susan K. Freeman. It is the first book designed for high school and university teachers who want to integrate queer history into their standard curriculum. You'll find a link to purchase the book at tolerance.org slash podcasts. Again, here are Nicholas Surrett and Sharon Ullman. So as we know, the post-war period is known broadly as the Cold War era. So after World War II and up until the mid to the late 1960s is the period we want to talk about right now. And as Nick notes, this is a really tough time. There's a serious recognition of homosexuality by the public at large. 
one key trumpet for this information was actually Alfred Kinsey's explosive 1948 book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, which was a massive bestseller, discussed nationwide and which proclaimed homosexuality to be widely practiced. An open discussion of psychology and human behavior more broadly also followed World War II as well and brought that conversation further into the public. And as Nick noted, the queer subcultures in major military areas that had arisen during and because of World War II really maintained a visible presence after the war. So there comes the intense backlash. Joe McCarthy, famed communist hunter, had homosexual men in his sights right away. And one of the first orders that President Eisenhower signed after his inauguration in 1953 was Executive Order 10450, which demanded that government employees be ferreted out for potential security risks and then be fired. And one main category for security risk was sexual perversion. That executive order was squarely aimed at those working for the government who were homosexual. So this was an era of real persecution for those brave enough to be out or open enough to be found out. So in thinking about how to teach this hard period via feature film, there are a couple of ways to look at it. There are recent films that have been made about this homophobia and the closet in this era, and there are several good ones. 2005's Brokeback Mountain comes immediately to mind. It was set initially in 1962, This tragic love story traces the difficult relationship two young men who work ranches in the West struggle with after they fall in love one summer. Thwarted by homophobia in the closet, their lives are ultimately destroyed. Director Todd Haynes has two movies on this topic. One is Far From Heaven from 2002. The other is the more recent Carol from 2015. And these two films both show the closet and the cost of it in the 1950s on white, upper class, and otherwise privileged characters. We talked for a second about Far From Heaven. Um, Far From Heaven is a take on the classic 1955 Douglas Sirk melodrama, All That Heaven Allows, where an upper class widow falls in love with her gardener. And this is Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson. Haynes revises the story to address a host of forbidden sexualities that are actually subtextual to that film and to the 1950s more broadly. So in his 2002 version, Dennis Quaid is a closeted gay man. His long-suffering wife, a straight, white, upper-middle-class woman played by Julianne Moore, falls in love with her African-American gardener, Dennis Haysbert, in the Rock Hudson role. And here, homosexuality and interracial romance are both forbidden, where Haynes reveals the intersectional nature of social policing on sexual practice in the period which is really important for students to understand. In some ways, this film teaches really well because it reveals very directly the significance of racism and homophobia in policing and containing notions of the family in the period. It reveals that they're linked, not dissimilar to the way that racism and homophobia recur and appear initially in Florida Enchantment from 1914. And you can ask students to watch this film and ask questions of what are the characters struggling with. So Dennis Quaid is the closeted gay man who desperately wants to please his family initially, but ultimately comes out because he can't face the kind of suffering that he's going through. So you can ask students to look at him and engage that with the 1950s moment of closet. 
Julianne Moore is having her entire vision of family reconsidered by Quaid's actions and also by her own growing attachment to an African-American. And so you can ask the entire vision of the 1950s as a white, middle-class, rising society, which is often what's taught for the 50s, and how that's undermined by a recognition of what shutting down so many different emotional spaces produces in society. So it challenges the 1950s overall, and you can ask your students to do that work with their basic history knowledge. The other thing I think works with this film and plays into a way that I teach about the 1950s more generally is that I start out by talking about idealized images of the 1950s, things like uh, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, and we talk about sort of the way that the 1950s are remembered more generally. And then I turn to what we actually know about the 1950s, which is, you know, rates of alcoholism were going up for housewives, they were dependent upon tranquilizers, many of the marriages that were contracted in the 40s and 50s ended in divorce, all of the things that we learned from Stephanie Kuntz's book, The Way We Never Were, in which she's deliberately making a comment on the idealization of the 1950s. So then to show this film and sort of the underside of the 1950s, all that is not revealed or kept in our memories about the 1950s, demonstrates just how complicated the 50s were in the way that, of course, all eras are complicated and cannot simply be represented through one glowing, rosy image of a decade. You can also use the movies that came out in this period to chart the social changes brought about by the sexual revolutions and the LGBT movement eventually, because the movies that are emerging also change. During the 50s, homosexuality is no longer coded through funny sidekicks. Now in the 50s, it's directly confronted. You have famous movies like Suddenly Last Summer from 1959, The Children's Hour from 1961, Advise and Consent in 1962, The Sergeant, Killing Sister George, both in 1968. All of these movies incorporate queer characters openly, if primarily, to kill them off or have them otherwise severely punished in the film's narrative. But a sense of sexual freedom begins to arrive with the 1960s. That famous Age of Aquarius, it turns out, was not just for heterosexuals. And as it took hold, particularly in the early 70s, not coincidentally shortly after the 1969 Stonewall riots, feature films begin to be more sympathetic. Openly gay authors propel films like Myra Breckenridge and Boys in the Band, both from 1970, or Sunday Bloody Sunday from 71, Cabaret from 72. And combined with what's happening in the street and in the wider community at large, these representations create a dramatic impact. Their visual presence matters, even if the context surrounding is sometimes homophobic. And the place to look more interestingly at this, actually in this moment, uh, late, late 60s, early 70s, is television. So for TV, you have widely praised movies like That Certain Summer, which came out in 1972 and starred Martin Sheen and a young Martin Sheen and Hal Holbrook. Now, Holbrook is interesting. Holbrook played a middle-aged man finally coming out in this film. But Holbrook was already a nationally famous figure for playing Mark Twain in a traveling one-man show. Now, this is the essence of Americana. He'd, He'd received a Tony for playing Twain in 66, just a few years earlier. So for Hal Holbrook to play a gay man sympathetically was symbolically resonant in a way that we today may not fully be able to access, but one which we can frame for our students and make them understand. 
That Certain Summer is a landmark film and one that is from television, so it's easy to use in the classroom. It's quite melodramatic, and our students may not be able to respond to that kind of early 70s TV. But we can frame for them an understanding of how that kind of television had such power in the moment, and we can see the sympathetic framing of the characters, we can look at the way this is part of everybody's home life, and we can ask our students to say, if they had been in 1972 watching this, what would have been their reaction? And have them try to reach into that moment and recognize the real change occurring at that time. A Question of Love in 1978 had Jenna Rollins as a lesbian divorcee fighting for custody of her children when she moves in with a character played by Jane Alexander. Now, Rollins had been nominated for an Oscar only four years earlier for A Woman Under the Influence. So these are seriously important actors playing these roles on television. And television had multiple TV episodes, Marcus Welby, MD, Policewoman, Mary Tyler Moore, that included gay characters. Famously, you probably remember this, Billy Crystal played an out gay man in the comedy series Soap, which was groundbreaking at the time. And all this programming attempted to present a more nuanced, more sympathetic, imaginary of LGBT life in reaction to the emerging queer civil rights movement. TV offered an intimacy. It reached into the home where these personal struggles were playing out in many living rooms across the country. And today we can see that what seemed to us as minor TV dramas actually carried a pretty serious punch. They presented sympathetic queer characters played by major Hollywood actors. And they speak also, sadly, to the way that mainstream film really ducked that moment and TV filled in the gap. So as you can see, there's a lot in that period. (laughs) And by the way, just as as a final note before I turn this back over to Nick to talk about great documentaries from this time, we would be remiss if in talking about queer cinema in the 70s, we left off 1975's Rocky Horror Picture Show Easily the queerest movie of the 1970s, and which, of course, went on to a very long, somewhat surprising afterlife as one of the most enduring and beloved cult films of all time. Indeed, shown annually in cities across the country at this point. So this period that Sharon's talking about, the 1950s through the 1970s, is really well represented in documentary films because these decades include the birth of gay and lesbian activism in the United States, and documentary filmmakers have been particularly interested in telling the history of that activism for the reasons that we've already discussed. Not only is it a good story, it's also a triumphalist story. We go from bad, not necessarily to good, but at least to somewhat better. Um, There are three great films, among a number of others, that all start with exploring the repression of queer people in the 1950s and 1960s, as Sharon just talked about, and then ultimately document how they resisted. All three of them are also either made by historians or based on relatively recent books by historians of the queer past, which is to say that they do a really good job of dealing with the evidence in pretty nuanced ways. These three films are called The Lavender Scare, Stonewall Uprising, and Screaming Queens. The Lavender Scare documents the firing of federal employees and then eventually workers across the country, especially teachers, in the Red Scare's cousin. That is, the persecution of homosexuals for the supposed security risk they posed. And this is the moment that Sharon was just talking about earlier. It then documents the resistance in the 1950s and 60s by gay men and women to this persecution, highlighting especially the work of Frank Kameny, who led the charge and then was honored 
much later by President Obama for that work before Kameny's death. And that is included in the film. And it's a particularly poignant moment as Obama is recounting why Kameny is being honored in the Oval Office. The second film, Stonewall Uprising, is the story of the iconic Stonewall riot in 1969 when drag queens and queer youth and trans people fought back against a police raid at the Stonewall Inn, a bar in New York's Greenwich Village. If your students, uh, like mine, or really like Americans more generally, know anything about queer history, it is probably Stonewall that they know about. In part, this is because the year after Stonewall, queer people held the first gay pride parade in New York City, a tradition that continues on across the country, usually in June, to commemorate Stonewall. Stonewall is thus usually also credited with kicking off gay liberation, a more militant and open style of gay politics from the homophile organizations that predate 1969 and that you get to see some of in The Lavender Scare. So precisely because most Americans already know about Stonewall and because the queer activist past is actually more complicated than most Americans understand, I am more in favor of showing other documentaries that decenter Stonewall from its supposed centrality in the fight for queer rights. But this film does do a great job of showing exactly what happened those nights in June. So if you're interested in getting your students to understand Stonewall and its significance, this is the film. And I particularly like about this film, not only that it sort of gives you a sort of moment by moment uh, work through of what occurred, but there are these great little maps that show exactly what occurred both in the bar itself and then in the blocks in the village around where the bar actually is located, where police were, where rioters were, what happened on those days. If, however, I were to choose one film about gay activism at mid-century, I would pick Screaming Queens, whose subtitle is The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. And this is the story of a San Francisco riot in 1966, so three years before Stonewall, where drag queens and trans sex workers fought back against police harassment at a 24-hour restaurant called Compton's Cafeteria, which is located in the Tenderloin. The film is by historian Susan Stryker, and if you're looking for something to read or to teach alongside the film, her book, Transgender History, is a short and accessible volume that students find really easy to read. I have taught it myself and then shown the film to students so the students see, acted out on screen, what they have already read about in the book. So that riot at Compton's Cafeteria is the centerpiece of the film. And Stryker includes some incredible interviews with trans people who were either there that night or with those who remember it or were involved in the movement for trans rights in San Francisco in the 60s. And these include a minister and a police officer who came to be allies of the trans community. And the film does a really great job of documenting the convergence of a number of forces that pushed these trans women over the edge. There are many great questions one can pose to classes in the wake of the film. So, for instance, where did a sense of trans identity come from? How did these women understand themselves as transsexual in the parlance of the day? What does medicine have to do with this? What was going on in San Francisco at this time that might have emboldened these women? What made them break, basically? And the film documents a moment that predates Stonewall, which is great. And it is also better at featuring a wide array of queer people of color, trans people and working class people than most documentaries or indeed any of the films we're talking about today. In short, the film is as much about the development of trans identity and trans activism as it is about one night in August of 1966. 
Yeah, it's a great film, and I've done the same thing. I've shown the film and had students read the book. I've done it multiple times. They love the movie. They really respond positively to it. That's a great one to work with. I wish I could tell you about all the great feature films that document this changing moment and the civil rights activism in the streets, but unfortunately, there actually are not a whole lot of narrative films that tell the story of this activism, per se. <laughs> you have Milk from 2008, which I mentioned in passing at the beginning. There was a little scene ABC docudrama from 2017 called When We Rise. It's an eight-hour miniseries. It was written by Dustin Lance Black, who won the Oscar for writing milk. It's pretty good. Both can be used in the classroom with individual episodes of When We Rise really helpful. To be fair and talk about all of them, there is a 2015 feature film called Stonewall about the riots made by Roland Emmerich. It was pretty controversial when it came out a couple years ago because it recast the story of the riots to actually make a white gay, cis, pretty boy from the Midwest, the central hero of the Stonewall riots. Well, you know, that might work for traditional old-fashioned Hollywood conventions, but it was both untrue, as Nick just mentioned. Trans youth and queers of color are central to the Stonewall riots story. It's also really out of touch with how current audiences demand to see this history more properly represented. Thinking about it, though, there is one exercise I do with my classes with the film Milk that might be useful here. I pair the Hollywood movie starring Sean Penn from 2008 with the independently produced Oscar-winning best documentary, The Times of Harvey Milk, which came out in 1984. Mm -hmm. That was only a few years after Milk's murder. And then I have students compare the stories told in each visual form, the feature versus the documentary. And I ask them to think about how the history is presented in each. What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses of each type of filmmaking in terms of history storytelling? And I ask them to explore what have they learned from each film? and specifically why and how each film teaches them that information. So it really forces them to think through the histories being presented by both films in complex ways. So they get a lot of information about this LGBT rights history moment in the late 1970s. And the two films, both of which are excellent in their own ways, really grab their attention. So they learn a lot and they really enjoy the assignment. Another way to talk to students about this change over time using film is, as before, to discuss the kind of movies you begin to see in the aftermath of Stonewall, say within 10 years. Gay rights, gay is good, these became rallying cries in the streets, and you begin to see movies heading into what we today might call queer positive space. Any lesbian of a certain age, of which, to be honest, I am, recalls with excitement such films as Personal Best from 1982, <laughs> Liana from 1983, Desert Hearts from 1985. Suddenly, lesbians were sympathetic, cool, and interesting. For gay men, on the other hand, it's slightly different. The decade of the 80s begins with the 1980 noxious film Cruising, starring Al Pacino. Now, no one is recommending you use this film in the classroom, but it is an interesting film to talk about because what it makes it fascinating for this discussion is the degree of protest and backlash that Cruising, the film, created. The plot of Cruising attacks gay male subculture and calls it inherently pathological and murderous. But the production was picketed, the film became the subject of a national boycott. It's an early moment where the impact of that emerging LGBT rights movement showed its growing muscle. And there was really clear public support from the public at large that this point of view, that the films like this were offensive 
and more than that, that they were dangerous to LGBT citizens, really took hold. So it has a fascinating afterlife. But the reality is that when you get to the 1980s, the impact of AIDS is going to alter all films that emerge about gay men and about LGBT life. You're listening to Queer America. I'm your host, Lila Roop. Teaching Tolerance has learned a lot about what LGBTQ students need to thrive, how even small policy adjustments and curriculum changes can make a big difference in the lives of queer and non-binary students. We also know that LGBTQ-inclusive schools benefit all students. Our new LGBTQ Best Practices Guide can help educators and school leaders ensure that all students feel safe, seen, and capable of success. By creating a curriculum as complete and representative as possible and cultivating a school climate that fosters open and respectful dialogue among all students and staff, you're preparing your students to engage and thrive within our diverse democracy. You can find it at tolerance.org podcasts. Again, Sharon Ullman and Nicholas Surrett. So let me situate our discussion of AIDS in film going forward. As Sharon noted, the decade of the 1970s was really important for queer culture in the United States. There was lots of activism of gay people, lots of queers moving to new places, founding new organizations, publishing magazines and newsletters, people coming out and founding cultural institutions. It was vibrant. And then much of it ground to a devastating halt in the early 1980s when some gay men started to get sick. And in the beginning, of course, no one knew what was causing men to die of infections that an uncompromised immune system would normally be able to combat pretty easily, or why so many of them had developed uh, Kaposi's sarcoma, an otherwise rare form of cancer that doctors did not see much at all. Eventually, of course, scientists and doctors would name the virus HIV, or human immunodeficiency virus, and then the disease AIDS, or acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And as more and more gay men, and then increasingly other populations like IV drug users and hemophiliacs, as they became sick, the federal government did very little to help them. And this led to an enormous amount of organizing by queers to aid the dying in really practical ways, uh, to learn about and to practice medicine, to encourage safe sex and prevent more infections once it was ascertained that sex was one of the primary ways that HIV could be transmitted and to protest the inaction of various forms of government. So there are now many great documentaries recounting AIDS in the United States. Three in particular stand out to me, but there are certainly more. Two of them, called How to Survive a Plague and United in Anger, are largely about ACT UP, uh, which is the acronym for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was the most important AIDS political action group. One of these films emphasizes medical treatment in ways that are at times a bit complicated for lower level undergrad or high school audience. And the other one is more about politics. They're both great and they're really wrenching. And if you're interested in showing something that focuses on the politics of AIDS, either of these would be wonderful. Both of them are also unabashed in their condemnation of President Reagan and the federal government for their lack of action. You know, if I could interject for a moment, uh, having taught these films several times, I also have an assignment connected to them, which I find particularly interesting and productive. I actually have students watch both of those in tandem and pair them. And then I ask them to analyze the argument 
They are telling roughly a comparable story about a same time period. Some of the same people appear in both documentaries as interlocutors. But the style of the film is different and the argument each film offers is different. And I have my students try to crack through and figure out how documentary can function to tell one story that looks singular, but actually can be broken apart and seen from multiple points of view. And so it's a pretty fascinating use if you pair them. That sounds great. There's another film, the third film that I mentioned, is a more sort of holistic portrait of one community, in this case, San Francisco, ravaged by AIDS. And it's called We Were Here. And it also, like the ones I was just mentioning and that Sharon was talking about, it includes discussion of activism, to be sure. But I find it a little more relatable and it's less complicated than the other two films for either a high school or a lower level college audience. So this film, We Were Here, starts by situating San Francisco as one town that had seen an influx of gay men during the 1970s. And then it follows those men through the beginnings of the 1980s as men started to grow ill and die, no one again yet knowing what was causing this mysterious illness that at first they were simply calling the gay cancer. It includes many interviews with men who survived the crisis, as well as particularly poignant segments, I found at least, with a nurse named uh, Eileen Glutzer, who nursed dying men in one of the country's first AIDS wards. Because it also documents the unprecedented response to AIDS, not just the arrival of AIDS, but queer people's response to it, both medical and political, by gay men and lesbians, it provokes a couple interesting questions for classroom discussion. So what was it about the gay community in San Francisco that made it so amenable to so much concerted action in response to this disease? How were gay people and San Francisco's gay community transformed as a result of AIDS? And perhaps most importantly, it does what Sharon talked about at the beginning of the podcast. It serves as a kind of prosthetic memory. It humanizes those men who died of AIDS and the overwhelming tragedy of the disease. And it makes our students try to feel and understand a little bit what it might have been like to be living at that time. Yeah, I mean... It's impossible to talk about the history generally that we're talking about, the history of LGBT Americans, history of LGBT life in America, using film and otherwise without addressing how AIDS alters both the history entirely as well as obviously the kinds of films that were made. The entire trajectory of LGBT history was redirected by the AIDS epidemic so much so that it really overwhelms the cinematic representations of this history that follows. So we really need to be specially careful when we discuss AIDS. It is crucial. It is a story that needs to be told properly. And yet it is also not the only story to tell in the LGBT history. But your students will be interested in learning more about it. They know very little about AIDS, and they very much want to know more. Film is an important way to help them get there. And I certainly, as I noted, have had my students watch the films discussed. Given how so much of the artistic community was devastated by AIDS, it's really important to note that there were, in fact, only a handful of films, either on the big screen or on TV at the height of the epidemic. And these early cinematic conversations, though, can be useful in the classroom. On TV, for example, in 1985, very early in open discussion of the epidemic, you had an early frost. In 1993, a little bit later, HBO serialized the book and the band played on. Let me talk for a second about an early frost. Um, An early frost gives you a sense of the landscape of the emerging mainstream conversation about AIDS in 1985. This was on um, national television. 
The film starred Jenna Rollins again and Ben Gazzara as white middle-class parents of a gay man who was played by a young Aidan Quinn. Uh, the movie's about their response when he reveals his diagnosis to them. And as the star power of Rollins and Gazzara versus the then very unknown Quinn make clear, the film is about the reaction of the heterosexual parents and his family. While it's a sensitive and supportive portrayal, the gay man with AIDS, while the object of the film's attention, is not the focus of the film itself. Still, this movie helped pave the way for a sympathetic portrayals of individuals and families who were beginning to address the growing epidemic. As we get toward and into the 1990s, um, after ACT UP has been operating, after you have really had a massive explosion of deaths, you begin to see such films as 1989's Longtime Companion and Philadelphia from 1982. Both movies received a lot of acclaim, and both have strengths and weaknesses as conveyors of this history. Yet they can provide thoughtful provocation in the classroom. Let me talk a little bit about each for a minute. Uh, the title Longtime Companion referred to the euphemism that newspaper obituaries used at the time when talking about the life partner of the deceased individual being eulogized. The film focuses on a group of white gay friends who spend each summer on Fire Island, and it tracks the early years of the epidemic as it sweeps away one member of their community after another. The survivors in the group move from grief to political action as the epidemic becomes the very center of their lives. I often show Longtime Companion to my classes, and students, to be honest, are very mixed in their responses. While they react to the sense of tragedy provoked by the conventions of Hollywood melodrama, they also raise red flags that all the characters are white and upper class. The film doesn't seem very interested in the fact that AIDS became a leading cause of death for African Americans, a direction that was well understood when the film was made. So I encourage my students to watch the film in critical context, remaining aware of its limitations in terms of class and race, but to allow themselves to access its very moving presentation of one community's growing panic and despair. Regardless of its real faults and limitations, the film can provide an emotional window onto what it may have felt like for those in the early days of the epidemic. Now, Jonathan Demme's Oscar-winning Philadelphia is, of course, the film most people think of when they recall AIDS-themed movies from the period. Tom Hanks won a Best Actor Oscar for his sensitive portrayal of a lawyer who sues for discrimination after he's fired from his Philadelphia law firm when his partners realize he has AIDS. Based on a real case, the film's protagonist is, as with The Early Frost, not actually the dying gay man. It is instead the heterosexual lawyer who sues the homophobic law firm on behalf of Tom Hanks' character. Played by Denzel Washington, this character stands in for a presumed mainstream straight audience. Washington's character evolves from a homophobic resistance at first to a supportive alliance with the Hanks character and his extended family by the movie's end. Hanks' performance does dominate the film, but the movie's true goal is to persuade the audience via the transformation experienced by Denzel Washington's character, to care. To care about those dying of AIDS and to see them as part of the wider American family. It was admired by mainstream audiences, but Philadelphia, however, received significant criticism in the LGBT community, which felt that its focus on AIDS phobia in the heterosexual community had the effect of erasing and stereotyping the gay men who should have been at the heart of the film. But it remains a popular film with many, 
and it gives students the chance to discuss the power of cinema to intervene in a national dialogue. Along with other similar films aimed squarely at heterosexual audiences, Philadelphia helped reshape the national mood from one of fear to one of sympathy. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, host of Teaching Hard History, another podcast from Learning for Justice. Educators can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You'll also find the link in the show notes. Then enter the unique code word for this episode. Footage, all lowercase. Now back to Sharon Ullman and Nicholas Surratt. So between the 1980s and 90s, this period that Sharon's just been talking about, and today, and this is to get us into films uh, that are documenting the more recent past, we can see that between that period and now, an enormous amount has happened for queer people in the United States. And that's going to be reflected in the films that are produced about this moment and that are produced now documenting earlier moments. So these have been some significant decades. Think about it this way. In 1986, in the midst of the AIDS epidemic, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Bowers v. Hardwick that it was perfectly constitutional for states to have laws that made gay sex illegal, as a number of states still did at the time. Only 17 years later, in 2003, in a case called Lawrence v. Texas, the Supreme Court reversed that decision, outlawing these anti-sodomy laws across the country, making it unconstitutional for any state to have such a law. Many of the same justices were still sitting on the bench, representing all the millions of Americans who had changed their minds about homosexuality as well. As more and more Americans came out of the closet, those around them now not only had a gay friend or relative, now they knew they had a gay friend or relative. So homosexuality had increasingly been humanized over this period. Yeah, and think about, say, 1996. So President Bill Clinton controversially signed the so-called Defense of Marriage Act in late September 1996, in the dead of night, about six weeks before the election. To help him, he assumed, win that re-election. The Defense of Marriage Act, known colloquially as DOMA, was put forward by a Republican Congress in a moment of preemptive, vile homophobia. It said... The federal government did not have to recognize gay and lesbian marriages if some state should ever agree to legalize them. And remember, at that moment in time, no state had, but several were talking about it. DOMA also gave states the right to not recognize such a marriage if it was performed in a different state. So when Clinton signed this bill, it was considered a huge betrayal from a president who had openly courted the queer vote in 1992 and had lesbian and gay advisors working for him. But DOMA only made activists fight harder. And state by state, marriage equality began to become the law of the land, either through state Supreme Court rulings or by popular vote. And in 2013, the United States versus Windsor, the Supreme Court ruled that the part of DOMA that allowed the federal government not to recognize a marriage that was legal in a state was ruled unconstitutional. 
And there's actually a documentary about that case, which tells the story both of the relationship and marriage of Thea Spire and Edie Windsor, for whom the case is named, and then also about the case itself. And that movie's called uh, To a More Perfect Union. Yeah. And shortly after that, really not very long at all, uh, comes the famous Supreme Court decision Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, which struck down the rest of DOMA and made marriage equality the law of the land for everyone, everywhere. But we have to remember that by the time Obergefell was decided in 2015, marriage equality was already the law in a majority of states and in areas where more than 70 percent of the nation's population lived. So the Supreme Court was actually following a national movement, not leading one. But what a change in under 20 years and very much tracking the change Nick just mentioned between 1986 with Bowers and 2003 with Lawrence. Yeah. So you can see that between the 1980s and the early 2000s, the changes have been really monumental. And those changes have found their way onto screens large and small. There are, for instance, an enormous number of documentaries representing all kinds of contemporary queer experiences, far too many to go into here because this is a podcast about history. But suffice it to say that because of a bunch of talented documentarians, you can now see films on gay families, on various LGBT ethnic and racial populations, on queer people in various locations, on gay bars, gay politicians and politics, queer Jews. There's a great film called Trembling Before God about Orthodox queer Jews, same-sex marriage, queer youth, you name it, there is a film about it. One that I remember particularly because it is both Oscar-winning and also a film by my cousin (laughs) uh, is called Freeheld, which charts the struggle of a dying woman to leave her pension. She was a firefighter to leave her pension to her partner. But in an era before same-sex marriage, uh, she was unable to do so without becoming an activist about doing so. So in one way, when it was made, it was documenting a contemporary struggle. But now we can actually use it to demonstrate a moment now, not all that long ago, uh, but a situation that would no longer occur because same-sex marriages would now be available to that couple. Yeah. And LGBT characters start appearing in pop culture and popular media more generally over the last 20, 25 years. So there's a general incorporation of more positive LGBT characters in the same period, you know, on TV starting as early as the early 80s, something called Love, Sydney was on. Ellen, obviously, the very famous series in the mid-90s where Ellen DeGeneres became the first person to come out in her own TV series. Obviously, Will and Grace, everybody's favorite uh, queer series from 1998 to 2006 originally, and then re visited now, returning from 2017 to the present. Uh, Think about queer as folk, queer eye for the straight guy, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all on TV. And there's so many more, I really can't get into them all. Um, In film, you had everything from, as noted before, Brokeback Mountain in 2005, all the way to films just this year, which are quite well-known, Love, Simon, Boy Erased. You had films set in historical time, Imitation Game, Milk, Pride, and of course, AIDS themes recur, Dallas Buyers Club from a few years ago, the HBO version of Angels in America, the film The Hours. You know, the queer characters in these films are expansive. They're often sympathetic, but a lot of them are fraught. Their being queer is the source of the film's tension, um, not often simply part of the character's story. Uh, Moonlight, the best picture of 2016, stands out precisely because it is about a young man of color, and his queerness, while it is central, is not his only problem. In fact, although a force in his life's tragedies, his queerness is also ultimately his site of redemption. 
Sharon, I am disappointed that among your litany of television shows, you did not mention my favorite, The L Word, uh, which was as trashy as can be, but also great fun. It was. Uh, I loved it, too. And I, I It was. <laughs> and I love the British queerest folk versus the American queerest folk. I love sort of watching them both and comparing them. Uh, we've little discussed here trans representation on film because it has been limited. Um, there are some exceptions, though. So Paris is Burning, the 1990 documentary, showed the underground New York City ball scene populated by trans people of color. Uh, in 1999's Boys Don't Cry told the story of transphobia in the Midwest in excruciating and horrifying detail. That's the murder of uh, Brandon Tina. Both films, of course, have gained significant criticism over time, um, but both also offer a glimpse of an emerging movement that began to bring trans lives into the popular cinematic conversation. So also included on a list of films depicting trans characters in the last, say, two decades or so would be The Crying Game, though that also not without controversy, um, and one I especially loved uh, that came out, I believe, when I was just beginning college, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, in the early 1990s, and then more recently, Trans America and The Danish Girl. Oh, but don't forget Tangerine from 2015. That was a fabulous film. Definitely. I would say also there have been a rising number of trans representations in recent years, particularly on television. Uh, so Transparent, Orange is the New Black, and then at least in the later seasons on The L Word as well. One area of controversy here is that most of the time these characters have not been played by trans actors. And this is a site of concern that is currently being debated both obviously by trans people and then by the Hollywood establishment that hires actors for movies and for TV shows and is often more worried about a financial bottom line than about trans representation. So the number of queer characters on TV and in movies is generally rising. In 2017, it was about 6.9% of characters on TV were queer, according to the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. That said, 77% of them were white. So we still have a long way to go to really represent the full diversity of queer people of color, especially on screen. Film representation in the same period was static over the past few years, with 83% of the few LGBTQ characters in films gay men. So the majority of the queer characters were uh, gay male characters, often members, as it turns out, of a production number in a musical. <laughs> um, so Hollywood <laughs> remains a complicated place to either unravel the LGBTQ past or to reveal its trajectory today. We have a great opportunity with these films, nonetheless. Uh, those of us looking to film, and many of us are doing this in our classes, uh, to help share the complexity of the LGBT past, have a really willing audience in our students. They're experienced consumers of visual culture. They thrive on it. They have a fluency in it. We have a lot to offer them, both in terms of how queer life has been represented over time and in how the history of LGBT citizens have been revealed in film. We should open that visual door for them. We should help them walk through it. And we should trust them to be able to stand thoughtfully on the other side. I agree completely. And I also want to emphasize one of the points that uh, we raised at the outset. Both of these types of film, documentary and feature, also help our students not just to understand what happened in the past, which is obviously our job as historians and history teachers, but they also serve as a form of uh, what Sharon called prosthetic memory. They allow our students to identify with subjects in the past, and they help to humanize the struggles of queer people towards self-realization in a world that sometimes denied their very existence. 
So at a political moment like the one we're in, when the government is trying to literally write trans people out of legal and medical existence, that remains an urgent political project. So I think part of what we've tried to demonstrate here today is that using film in a classroom and then uh, as, a, as a history teacher, contextualizing that film, it's a great way to get students to understand a whole lot uh, about the queer past and really move beyond what students think they already know. I want to address the squeamishness. Students giggle. They giggle in movies. They giggle on TV. Depends on where you're teaching and, and what the background is. But often students giggle in general when there's signs of sexuality in front of them. And that's because they're uncomfortable and that's fair. Um, so it takes work to help work with them about what does it mean to giggle? What does it mean to feel uncomfortable? And help students through discomfort. Uh, because otherwise there's whole ranges of the world that we can't talk about. And we want to talk to our students. And our students are interested. And some of this has changed over time with the uh, wide-ranging qualities of the internet and the forms of digital media that many students have access to. Students are way more familiar with a lot of current-day queer topics than we might think. But they do associate them with themselves. They associate it with now. They don't associate it with the past or their parents or their grandparents or, God forbid, their great-grandparents. This is a universe of today. And so historicity this through the visual media that they're so familiar with is actually really valuable and reminds them that the world doesn't operate just at the moment. And the things that they're so comfortable with today actually can reach back and you can see them much earlier and see people comfortable with them in the past as well. I think also our job as history teachers is certainly to inform our students about the past, but I think it's also in a moment where you know, lots of queer people still do not have something close to equal rights, particularly so outside the United States, but within the United States as well, significant populations of queer people do not enjoy equal rights. It's important to humanize civil rights issue, um, not just because we want to understand about the past and what's going on, but also because we want to create sympathy uh, in our citizenry um, for those who are not able to do as they want to do with their lives. So I think that film works to do that in a way that simply me talking uh, in front of a classroom is not always able to do. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons that the conventions of Hollywood actually work. The melodrama works. People get involved. Uh, Hollywood knows how to pull your heartstrings, and that's a good thing in this particular story because we need people to feel that they care. I mean, that's why Philadelphia worked. It said to people, you need to care. You need to reflect that this group of people, and that's how it kind of was framed, they and us, um, are part of our family. So that closing of the film has the Denzel Washington character attending the funeral with the entire family and lots of family photos. And the film ends with family photos and old videos of the character as a child. And all of that is a way of making those individuals with AIDS part of an American family. And so film has this really special gift. And that's why it's so valuable to us in teaching and in getting our students access to a story that, frankly, in the rest of the community and the rest of the popular culture and the rest of the media and the rest of their pedagogy and their school curriculum just isn't there. And so we can do that. Sharon Ullman is professor of history at Bryn Mawr College. She's the author of Sex Scene. That's S-E-E-N, The Emergence of Modern Sexuality in America, and co-editor with Kathleen Kennedy of Sexual Borderlands, Constructing an American Sexual Past. 
Nicholas Surrett is professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Kansas. He is the author of The Company He Keeps, A History of White College Fraternities, as well as American Child Bride, A History of Minors and Marriage in the United States. Nicholas is also the co-editor of Age in America, The Colonial Era to the Present. Queer America is a podcast from Teaching Tolerance in partnership with the University of Wisconsin Press. They're the publisher of the award-winning anthology, Understanding and Teaching U.S. Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender History. In each episode, we're featuring a different scholar to talk about material from a chapter in that collection. You can purchase the book at tolerance.org slash podcasts. You'll also find additional tools, including resources we've mentioned, episode transcripts, and an LGBTQ best practices guide to help your school create an inclusive curriculum and an open and respectful climate for dialogue among students and staff. Teaching Tolerance is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center, providing free resources to educators who work with children from kindergarten through high school. You can also find those online at tolerance.org. Thanks to Dr. Surrett and Dr. Ullman for sharing their insights with us. This podcast was produced by Shay Shackelford with production assistance from Russell Gregg. Kate Schuster is our project manager. Music in this episode is by Chris Zabriskie. So what do you think? Let us know on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Review us in iTunes. And please tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. I'm Dr. Lila J. Roop, Professor of Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and your host for Queer America.